You're listening to the podcast of Shady Grove Presbyterian Church. The purpose of this podcast is to help you grow in your walk with Christ and apply his word to your life. My name is Ben Hine, and I'm one of the pastors here at Shady Grove, and I'm joined by three other guests this morning. We have Senior Pastor Charlie Bale, uh, we have the Doc Mike Nola, and uh, the esteemed and valuable Howard Quatch here with us as well. So good morning, guys. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Glad to have you all here. We have an exciting combination episode of Mark chapters 12 and 13 today that we'll be getting into in just a moment. And before we do, uh, the warm-up round, as always, we want to get started with a good reflection question. And uh, we are coming off of, I guess, I'm losing track of time, but I think last week was Thanksgiving. Or two weeks ago, two weeks ago was Thanksgiving, um, and so you know, and then we're heading into Advent, and uh, you know, and in our family, we've been talking a lot about being grateful, showing gratitude, and so even with you know our boys uh, at dinner time, we've been trying to ask like, what are you grateful for uh, today? And it's been funny. I think probably towards the beginning of that practice, um, it was either me thanking Neva or Neva thanking me for cooking dinner. And that has been Felix's like go-to response. Now, every time we ask him, like, what are you grateful for today? He'll look at whoever made dinner and said, thank you for making dinner. Uh, and that's kind of like his practice of gratitude, which is which is cute. But um, yeah, you know, so this practice of giving thanks. And uh, I think, you know, we we can just take a look at, well, there's, it's kind of all over the scriptures, right? The importance of giving thanks and commands to give thanks um, to the Lord. And so just asking you guys, um, why do you think, it's important um, for Christians to have a practice of giving thanks. Why is it important for Christians to have a grateful heart? And uh, maybe the flip side of that is what does an ungrateful, grumbling Christian heart signify or perhaps even warn us of? Uh, So why is it important for a Christian to give thanks? And what does an ungrateful heart in a Christian life maybe warn us of? And Howard, maybe we'll start with you. Sure. Uh, the, I guess uh, the latter, the ungrateful heart indicates that you're not grateful. Um, but uh, other than maybe like the, like the psychological health of giving gratitude in general, what is it about um, following Jesus, uh, you, me, you, um, following Jesus in particular, makes gratitude um, important. Uh, I think of grace. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think with an understanding of God's uh, favor and love, his just his fatherly disposition towards us um, in Christ and by sending his son as uh, as a way to display his love. um, I think that Feeling that, em- embracing that, being embraced by God, um, should uh, induce uh, gratitude, and um, I think it's important because there's probably so many distractions, and so when there isn't gratitude, that kind of means that it could mean that. That really, maybe there's um, something that's distracting you from that relationship, mm-hmm. if not the various things that God blesses us with. Um, so, 
taking things for granted or maybe assuming or maybe worse presuming mm. things about our heavenly father um could be a sign of uh, a neglect of that um deep intimate relationship that we have um so also um this is kind of like a footnote that uh communion which is which what is what we're going to participate in this sunday um it, it was used was was and is still called eucharist which is greek for um i give thanks mm-hmm. looking over at the doc <laughs> right now confirming the greek there um that it, when christians gather together in the name of the lord the high point of worship is thanksgiving yeah um, yeah it's all a good word uh thanks howard uh either you two guys mike or charlie want to Chime in. I, what came to mind for me was um, the verse in First John that says, "We love because He first loved us." Uh-huh. And mm-hmm. once we understand God's love for us and we participate in that, it just changes attitudes about everything. Uh-huh. And I think we, as Christians, um, compared to anybody else uh, on the planet, you know, ought to be optimistic in our uh-huh. outlook. Because we know how things end up. <laughs> and, you know, because of God's sovereignty, we, we know where we're going. We know to whom we belong. And uh, those are all reasons to be grateful. Yeah. I think Felix's answer may be more profound than you think. <laughs> and that the whole problem of in the wilderness was they weren't thankful that God was providing their food for them. And all we've got is this manna to look at. And uh, they loathe this worth, worthless food. And um, so it was really a problem of gratitude that really led to uh, the whole uh, falling away uh, in Israel. So I think for myself personally, I know that my mood and my demeanor and who I am and all those things, even my outlook on the day is very much uh, affected by the state of my heart and whether I'm thankful. And uh, it's the first domino in the tripwire of falling towards idolatry in Romans 1, where he says they didn't give thanks or honor him as God, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God and you know all these things, and they became fools. They thought they were wise, they became fools. And so I would say just as, as uh, gr- giving of our money pulls the plug on greed, that giving thanks has a way of rooting out self-pity and depression, discouragement, and when God has our thanks, He really has all of us, Mm -hmm. our whole heart, and it really begins and ends with gratitude, and it's interesting how the, the Heidelberg Catechism builds the whole catechism around those three questions at the very beginning of says, uh, what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Question two. And the, and the answer is first, how great my sins and miseries are. Second, how I am to be delivered from all my sin and misery. And third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. And the back end of that catechism goes into that as this running theme of gratitude runs through the catechism. Hmm. That's good. Um the Puritan Thomas Watson said that uh, our murmuring or our grumbling is the devil's music. 
Mm. And that's a quote that stuck with me. And there's an image, uh, I texted this to Charlie the other night, but uh, there's an image that has kind of stuck with me recently because I've been rewatching very slowly in the uh, time that I can find uh, rewatching the extended editions of um, Lord of the Rings. I've only gotten through Fellowship at this point. Um, but the it's in the be- toward the beginning before the Fellowship is formed, but they're all in Rivendell and uh, you know, you have the dwarves and the men and uh, the elves and everyone there, and they all start fighting over what to do with the ring. So this is, and then this is before Frodo has volunteered to take it, yeah. and they they they're murmuring and complaining and arguing with each other continues to grow, and it keeps on flashing to the ring, and the whispers of Sauron are kind of growing because it's sort of you know influencing the people in their infighting and and uh, Frodo's getting this headache because it's like starting to affect him and it's really just this i think vivid scene of our complaining our grumbling our murmuring our fighting against each other and how sin and satan just uses that uh to advance his purposes and and get a foothold in our lives and so i think we really need yeah really need to be careful that's the warning is really being careful of um you know, rooting out our complaining and grumbling heart. And the other, you know, passage that came to mind for me is uh, the great Philippians 2 passage, which, you know, I think we kind of tend to stop maybe uh, after verse 13 in our own kind of analysis of that. So you have, you know, verses 1 to 11 are the great uh, poetic verses of what Christ did in his humility to come and, you know, uh, make himself lower you know, died for us. And then, you know, verses 12 and 13 are this work out your own salvation. But then he goes on to say, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I pour, am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Uh, and so not only is there the, the implication of in, in light of what Christ has done, work out your own salvation, but don't be a grumbler too. Those are the two applications that he draws from what Christ has done uh, for us. And uh, so I think, yeah, there's just a lot of significance and um, really been catching myself especially the last couple of years really trying to have a better practice of gratitude so that's where i was going to go next ben you stole my thunder oh really well <laughs> you have any, if you have any more thunder to give i'm sure no, that's it we're out okay all right um well thanks guys for reflecting on that and i hope that was helpful for those listening um never too never too late to make a practice of um of gratitude one more quote by the way that i uh found in my quotes library that i just wanted to share that i thought was really powerful uh, this is gk chesterton he says, the worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. I thought that was, you know, a little bit maybe tangential to our conversation, but gave me a lot to think about. The worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. So hopefully we recognize that we have someone to thank. All right, let's get into uh, Mark chapters 12 and 13 and... Possibly a little bit strange uh, if you're listening. Maybe um, might be strange chapters to combine into one episode, but I think we can make this work. And this is really chapters 11 through 13 are really Jesus's kind of temple discourse, temple uh, 
it's all centered around the temple. And so uh, we'll hopefully be able to help you make sense of some of that. Uh, chapter 12 is really continues uh, some more themes of Jesus's authority being challenged. And uh, so there's some uh, good uh, um, sections there that we're about to get into. And if you want to think about maybe uh, chapter 12, how you can um, capture 12, chapter 12, and maybe a thought is chapter 12 begins with the San, um, the religious leaders coming to uh, argue with him. And so he's talking to them. And at the end of their, their dispute in either verse 11 or 12, I think I don't have it right in front of me. Uh, it says they go out uh, wanting to seek his life, right? To seek him out to arrest him, uh, which is the idea of seek his life to take it. Mm-hmm. But then um, the chapter ends with the widow who basically gives her life, right? From her offering, like she gives all that she has um, to uh, to the Lord. And so that's maybe kind of uh, where we're where chapter 12 begins and where it's going, if that's helpful for you and thinking about that. And then chapter 13 is this, wonderfully confusing uh, prophetic message that we'll get into uh, from the Lord as well. And so let's go ahead and jump into chapter 12. And I should probably get out of Philippians here in my Bible and and scroll over to uh, Mark. But um, in these first opening verses uh, here for you guys to answer, um, when he's debating with the religious leaders and talking about the vineyard and then the stones, um, what, what remarkable claim, especially when he's talking about the vineyard, and given that um, parable, what remarkable claims is Jesus making for himself there? What remarkable claims is Jesus making for himself in the parable of the vineyard? Charlie? Sure. Well, it begins with, um, you know, basically, I mean, Jesus is asserting that the, the vineyard would have been tied to Israel. So from Isaiah 5, where there's the the hearing audience would have been familiar with this, certainly the Pharisees, as he's saying this, he's telling this uh, parable, and it's clear that the vineyard is Israel. Mm -hmm. And if the vineyard is Israel, then you start to put the pieces together of the parable, and he's going on and he's talking about how the, the people in the vineyard, the workers, have treated horribly everybody who's come to them, which would have been the prophets of old, and now it says when the son has come, they say, oh, this is the heir. Let's kill him and we can get the inheritance. And he's clearly making a reference to himself as God's son, that he is the son. Mm-hmm. And they they get this. And in Matthew's account, he asks the question, you know, what, 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 should they do, what should they do to this person? And uh, he says he's going to give the give it to another. He's going to give it to the Gentiles and take this from them and punish them. And... Here he's saying, come on, guys, haven't you heard, and he quotes from Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And that's kind of the culmination of where this parable is going. And that that familiar refrain would probably be as familiar to us as the weary world rejoices or he comes to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found because we sing those every Christmas. Well, they sang these every uh, every Passover, they sang the Hallel Psalm, Psalm 113 to 18, and 18 is the culmination. That was the Hallelujah Chorus. So they would have known this familiar phrase like twinkle, twinkle, little star. And here he's quoting it back to them that you guys have rejected the cornerstone and that Jesus is this stone that's come and this is the Lord's doing. So it's clearly 
showing us that Jesus is God's son and he's being rejected by the very people he's come to save. Yeah. Um, what do you guys make of, that's really good, Charlie, uh, and some of you, Mike or Howard, what do you guys make of, um, you know, I just think it's pretty profound that um, in the parable, you know, that the owner has a beloved son um, and sends the son knowing that the son is going to be put in danger. Like what, um, yeah, what can we draw out then maybe from this parable of the father's relationship to the son, you know, the Lord, not speaking par- in the parable, but the God, the father's relationship to God, the son. Um, I don't know. What do you, what do you guys think we can draw from this? If anything on that relationship? You're going somewhere with this. I'm not. I just, I think it's, well, I just think, you know, it's, it's, you think of like, okay, you think of the prodigal son parable and there's a lot that we can draw out there. But then here it's beloved son. And, I, and I'm even thinking like John three sixteen mm-hmm. a little bit here. Uh, God so loved the world. He gave his um, one and only son and all that. But it's, I mean, he's putting the son in, in danger. Yeah. And he says, this is the Lord's doing. Yeah, it was, and it was marvelous. It's it just marvelous in our eyes. It is fascinating when we do see from Isaiah fifty-three and Zechariah that uh, strike, strike the uh, sheep. Uh, what's the phrase? Strike shepherd. shepherd, and the, the sheep will be scattered. <laughs> and and clearly, the the shepherd is Jesus. And um, it pleased God to bruise the son. Isaiah fifty-three says, and so the, this idea that it was decreed to happen it is amazing yeah yeah i I think um you know he sent servants before and knew what happened to the servants and like i have one left my beloved son i'm gonna send him and yeah it's just really i think it also um, speaks to god's commitment um that he would he pulled all the stops he he wasn't just sending hmm. prophets and priests and teachers and kings and leaders, but at the very end, mm-hmm. he sent his only beloved son. And you know, at the um, at Jesus' baptism and at his transfiguration, those are words that come from God Himself. This is my beloved mm-hmm. son. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's also interesting that um, Jesus speaks to the crowd in language that they understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, as Charlie pointed out, the references to uh, Isaiah and Zechariah would have been very familiar to them. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, so it wasn't like Jesus was doing something obtuse and keeping information away from them. He was he was speaking something that they would understand clearly. Yeah, and I also, it's my understanding that this tenant farming system was very common at the time, so common that I think other rabbinic literature was kind of filled with these images as well. So not just the scripture would they have been familiar with, but this was very much a uh, an idea that they were very familiar with because it was very a very common practice at the time, which uh, there's some good lessons there in making the teaching plain. Howard, do you have anything you want to add? Uh, not quite to add, but I've always wondered um, if that's okay. Uh, <laughs> What what is it that makes the I just want to be specific here the chief priests and the scribes and the elders 
what is it that makes them um like i guess angry or like why 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 was it that um with jesus quoting isaiah 5 psalm 118 how did they know that those scriptures were used by jesus to speak against them like um what is it about specifically psalm 118 quoting psalm 118 that makes them like well, an opponent of he, jesus you're claiming to be the cornerstone it's kind of think of joseph's dreams and he's telling these dreams over his brothers and 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 in in the story Joseph's getting all the worship, you know, and it's like, man, they hate him all the more. It says they hated him all the more. They already had a problem with him because he's getting too much attention. He's the big shot. We need to bring this guy down. And now he's claiming that we're all going to bow down to him and all this stuff. And so this thing ends with he's become the the cornerstone. Like, it's just they're all the more hardened in their hatred of him that they're fulfilling what has been prophesied. That would be my guess. I think John gives us a clue as well uh, after the raising of Lazarus <clears throat> when uh, the chief priest says um, Jesus has to die because if not, uh, the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. And so they saw Jesus as a threat not only to their religious system, but to life as they knew it. And yeah. uh, that it was if they didn't stop him, their uh, their light their milieu was coming to an end very quickly. Too much was at stake. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I also think there's some some significance even just thinking about who who brings on the uh, the most judgment upon themselves. You know, in this in this parable, uh, the vineyard isn't judged for not being fruitful. Mm. It's the tenant farmers. That are judged, right? And I think maybe that's also, uh, you know, it's if uh, okay, they knew the vineyard was Israel, so by implication, who is who are the tenant farmers who are supposed to be caring for Israel? It's the religious leaders, you know. And this is clearly talking about the tenant farmers being judged for not taking care of the vineyard. Um, but I think it also, uh, again, like uh, we, there's plenty of passages you know you can point to where, and Jesus talks about this here even. Um, later in chapter 12, that religious leaders, uh, if they don't care for God's flock, they bring a stricter, harsher judgment on themselves. And uh, so I think we see some of that here as well. Um, Let's skip forward a few verses to verse 18 and uh, talk about the Sadducees and the resurrection and um, this debate where they're trying to trap him with this woman who is at seven husbands and then wanting to know, um, you know, so who is, who is she married to? Right. So obviously that doesn't make sense. So obviously no resurrection. Ha ha. Gotcha, Jesus. <laughs> um, and, uh, he has one of his classic, wonderful responses. So he, Jesus in his response to the Sadducees kind of has a few different lines of argument to show them their error. So what are some of the arguments that Jesus uses against the Sadducees here? Well, number one, he, he tells them that they don't understand the scripture nor the power of God. That would have cut to the quick. <laughs> their, their whole life was about understanding scripture. Uh, 
So they're, they're in for, um, for a, a lesson here. Uh, <clears throat> they were sad, you see. The Pharisees wow. weren't fair, you see. No. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the, um, he just really takes them to task that um, I love how he quotes from uh, the Pentateuch to show them that, you know, I'm the God. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And that's helpful. It's a great verse to actually think about when you lose somebody or even a, a, if you think of a funeral service. And I've sometimes used that verse at the very top of the, you know, and here Jesus is saying, you know, he's not the God of the dead. Like everybody thinks, oh, they've died. And in the resurrection, you know, someday he'll be alive again. And it's, no, they're alive now. Yeah. And they'll be resurrected with their body. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive and well at this very moment. And so are all those who've gone before us, like my dad, that are experiencing they've they've never been more alive and so it was just a good you know here these they, they were sad you see because they didn't believe in this they didn't have the joy of having this understanding the resurrection so jesus is really begins with wrong and then he ends with quite wrong i mean it's really like he's not being very politically correct or, or very nice here he's just like really taking it to him <laughs> Yeah, you're quite wrong. End of conversation. <laughs> um, uh, I, yeah, the Sadducees who um, who spent their lives understanding the scriptures, and then Jesus quoting a scripture that, according to my brief research about the Sadducees, to refresh um, <clears throat> uh, the historical part about them, is that they kind of emphasized. Um, the Pentateuch, though I don't think they excluded the rest, but they really emphasized it. Um, <clears throat> so that's uh, so them not knowing. Is that correct, is kind Mike? Of Can you, or is that just the Samaritans? Was that the Sadducees that only believed in the, in the Pentateuch? I'm not sure. That's what I. That's what I. I found in my research, and even so, the commentary I was reading kind of probably jokingly said that. The Sadducees were the theological conservatives and the Pharisees were the theological progressives because they had also their oral tradition and teachings and yeah. stuff. So, anyways. Um, yeah. So then I wonder, um, like this, I'm wondering about Jesus's interpretation of Exodus. Like, um, what makes the Sadducees distinct is that they don't believe in the resurrection, but the Pharisees do. What, like, um, is Jesus. Is Jesus's interpretation of Exodus three to to I guess quote unquote biblically justify the resurrection? Is that a novel idea at that time? Is it how did the Pharisees um, come to understand and believe and also affirm the resurrection too? Just one of my crazy footnote questions I have. Yeah, I don't I don't know how the Pharisees came, um, but so one of the things I saw in my research is that the Mishnah was kind of filled with, uh, so uh, one passage says, whoever denies the resurrection of the dead has no share in the world to come, was common in the Pharisee school, and yet you have the Sadducees who were just like, no. So Yeah, so back then it's not justification. Yeah. Uh, back then it's resurrection. <laughs> but there's a lot of other resurrection quotes in the Old Testament yeah. besides this Exodus 3. I mean, the end of Psalm 16, 
you know, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The end of end of Psalm 17 is, you know, I'm going to uh, behold him um, when I awake. And Daniel 12, 2, Isaiah 53, there's a, there's a bunch of references to resurrection idea that's yeah. throughout the Old Testament. Yes, so I think that would have been the, the default position. <clears throat> the question would be, how did the Sadducees get to the point where they didn't believe in resurrection, seeing as how mm-hmm. it's uh, so mm-hmm. found in Scripture? So but I think the question actually goes the other way. It wasn't, you know, how did the Pharisees come to believe resurrection? It's how did the Sadducees come to believe in no resurrection? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> So I was going to look at in, um, you know, in, in Matthew eight, as an example, there's some different places in the gospels where Jesus takes it, takes it for granted or just works on the operates on, on the understanding that the patriarchs are still alive, you know? And so Matthew eight eleven, for example, he says, I tell you, many will come from East and West and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of, he- of heaven. So you have these examples of where he just talks, you know, they're alive. And so... And it's also pointing to this big Old Testament theme of a big feast, like yeah. Isaiah 25, that assumes resurrection to have, yeah. how are we going to have this big feast if we're not alive, you know? So, yeah. yeah. I really I really like uh, Jesus's response here in, in both. I mean, just the... Uh, Charlie and I were talking about this, I think, yesterday in, in the office. And, you know, there's a time for compassion and empathy and listening to people in in our, like, differences and views. And then there's a time to be really, really blunt. And it seems, you know, the pattern most often in the New Testament in particular is Jesus, the apostles, are very blunt with religious leaders and very compassionate, empathetic with sheep but, you know, just this, like, uh, you know, when he first starts and he says, um, come on, face ID. There we go. Uh, is this not the reason you are wrong because you neither know, uh, you know, neither the scriptures nor the power of God? Like, that's like, I mean, pick Ow. your pick your uh, analogy today. It's like that's like saying to someone on Wall Street that you don't know finance. You know, it's just like you, th- you th- this is your living and yet you know nothing about it. Hmm. And then, you know, when he, when he ends by saying, you are quite wrong. Like, it's just, I mean, it's like such an emphatic, it's like, you are way off base. You're just so wrong. And, uh, you know, mic drop. Uh, and I just, he's very firm with them on this. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's really kind of struck, struck a chord with me. Well, what, what a contrast, like pre Jerusalem before I'm thinking about the story right leading up to where we are right now um, the kinds of interactions mm-hmm. that Jesus had now um, with the with the religious leaders at the temple I'm uh, to take a step back really quickly I'm imagining myself as the disciples yeah. right, who are with Jesus now in the temple but um, but specifically it's it's with the chief priests elders and scribes because when he when Jesus in the previous chapters um, when he tells them that he's going to or not he but the son of man must suffer many things and specifically be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes in uh, chapter 8 verse 31 and then subsequently like he does that again specifically calls out 
that the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, right? and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles mm-hmm. um, in chapter 10, verse 33. And then um, you know, chapter 11, uh, right before chapter 12, it says, as he came again to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple, yeah. Da, 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 da. Yeah. <laughs> the chief priests and the scribes and elders came to him. I'm. It's just like the tension mm-hmm. as as a disciple must have built up so much that th- this Messiah that I'm following, I'm putting my hope in for deliverance in whatever 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 it is that I want or we want Israel to be delivered. Um, this this is getting risky. This is getting scary. This yeah, is getting and you dangerous. See, and you see in this chapter mm-hmm. and in the next, the authority of Jesus, which we've been seeing running throughout. But each gr- group is kind of singled out here. So he starts with the Pharisees, and they mm-hmm. think they're the authority, and so they hold up. You know, they got they're going to get him with this trick question about the tax, and Jesus shows that he's the authority on this subject. Then then it's the Sadducees. Okay, the next power group steps up and. They get leveled. Then a scribe who really just, oh, he thinks he's really smart and, you know, asks some, you know, question. And and then Jesus just looks at him and says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Like, not only am I the authority, but I know where you're at in relation to the kingdom. And it says nobody asked him any more questions. But then he has another question, which is, again, going to silence them as they don't know how to answer. How is David... uh, you know, how is da- how's the Messiah David's Lord and also David's son? How can that be? And yeah. it's just booming with authority. So, like, as a disciple, I'm thinking the the Messiah that I'm following or the person who is proclaiming himself as the Messiah, um, he's winning. Like, I'm tallying exactly. up all these wins. Yes. But, but he's also saying, I will be delivered up. I'm, yeah. even though I'm winning in all these ways, I, the Son of Man will still suffer mm-hmm. and die yeah. and be risen. So I, I'm just imagining the kind of like the, this tension and maybe like, yeah, this tension yeah. that I would have as a disciple following him, winning, and yet he's going to lose. Yeah, it, yeah. it just keeps mounting and mounting. And you got you have to say, probably nagging somewhere in the back of disciples' minds is a question like, yeah, you're winning, but are you orchestrating your own death here? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, it, you know, of course, they they knew that he had made those predictions, but uh, I mean, Jesus is taking these people on, <laughs> locking horns left and right. It's like, can, is there any good that can possibly or, or something positive that can come out of this encounter? Yeah. Um, just quickly, um, what do what can we learn here? And this is going to. Um, maybe set us up a little bit for chapter 13, but what can we learn, if anything, in Jesus's response here about the world to come? I think this verse, um, verse 25, you know, trips up a lot of people and for good reason. When Jesus says, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Uh, What's going on there? And, you know, can we, what can we learn? And, is Jesus really teaching us? Like, am I going to know my spouse in heaven? And, you know, um, we could say a lot here, but maybe if we could just give a couple guidelines for our listeners. So She's no longer going to be your spouse yeah. in heaven. I mean, you're not given a marriage or, you know, there's there's no more marriage. So, yeah. 
Well, except that Jesus is the the bride yes. of mm-hmm. the church, yeah, and um, or sorry, the groom, the groom, and so the analogy has reached its fulfillment. Yeah. Or what's the proper theological terms? The type has become the yeah. antitype, or what? What? Well, why do you think he says that? Going to be like angels. Um, one, I, I don't find this answer satisfying and maybe it's because of my own just bias but i've seen some people say what jesus means by that is he's he's really referring to marriage and reproduction and um you know because that's one of the purposes of marriage is to have children and so we're going to be like angels in that like there's no need like there's gonna be no more children anymore so we're like the angels in that the angels don't have those kind of relationships that produce children. And I just don't find that answer quite satisfying because I don't think that having children is the only or maybe even the ultimate purpose of marriage given in scripture. And so I just have a hard time thinking that's what Jesus is making the analogy for. But maybe again, that's just my own bias. Maybe that really is what he's getting at. I'm just not, I'm not sure. It reminds me of the C.S. Lewis quote where the the child just can't imagine anything greater than chocolate. And so you tell them that, you know, when you're when you're having sex, you're not really going to be thinking about chocolate. And the child just, all he can think about is chocolate. And so for us, we can't think of anything greater than sex. And to say, well, we may not be having sex in heaven, that there's going to be something so much greater. All we can think about is the chocolate. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's hard. You know, I just, I, I guess maybe, um, see if you guys would agree with this, like, just want to be cautious not to draw and try and draw too many like implications from this one verse. Like I think some people really try to like milk this for like you can, you know, all these like marriage principles or something from one. And I'm just not quite sure <laughs> that's what Jesus is getting at. Like let's like, what's the main point, And then let's stick with that. Well, he, he does say they neither marry or are given in marriage. So let's not take away from what he is clear. Yeah. I would say that's clear. So, it doesn't necessarily mean that we. It's possible in another world that we could still reproduce or or those kind of things. There could be another thing that God has in store, but He does say that we're not going to be that the that the the age of marriage seems to have come to clearly come to an end here. Yeah. The part I wrestle with is He has made us male and female mm-hmm. and when we are raised in a new glorified body we will still be male and female very mm-hmm. distinctly and as image bearers you still wrestle with okay this is part of who we are That's true. wouldn't we exercise you know <laughs> dominion yeah. and those kind of things as as we did here so that's i do wrestle with th- these things yeah. So. yeah it's you know it's um there are things that we know are clear about the life to come, but we don't even know, like, but to what degree. So, for example, we know there's going to be work. We don't really know what kind of work. Like, okay, so we know it's going to be redeemed work, that, you know, the toil, the labor, but does that mean that computer science work will exist? You know, like, sure. what kind of work? Sure, but so, you and I are going to be unemployed. Yeah, we will be unemployed. There's no uh, sin. Wait, there's no need for us anymore. Uh, so that, so that, yeah. What, what do, what do pastors get to do in heaven? Uh, second, you know, we know, we know we're gonna eat. 
But like, what are we going to eat? And there's a whole debate of, are we all going to be vegetarians because there's going to be no death? So are we going to have, you know, is there going to be meat? Like you can get into that. And then finest of meats, Isaiah 25. um, (laughs) uh, You know, with this, it's like, okay, if there's no marriage, are there still households? You know, like are the, are those relationships? uh, Will my relationship with my sons in heaven be different in some way than my relationship with Charlie or anybody else, or is it just all it's, eh? you know, and I think that's just where it's don't draw too much from this and don't make it say more than we can really say, um, I guess would be kind of where I want to land on that. Um, let's look at the end of chapter 12. I think, uh, sometimes the, uh, the widow's offering, which is a really beautiful little section here is sometimes taught in isolation from what immediately comes before it. Uh, so verses 38 to 40, you have another condemnation of the religious leaders. And then 41 to 44, you have this example of this widow giving from really all that she has. It's really, it's seemingly insignificant, but because she's giving it from all that she has, it makes it more valuable, which is great. Um, but taught in isolation, you maybe lose some of the meaning uh, in light of what Jesus has just said in 38 to 40 about the religious leaders in particular, he he's condemning the religious leaders for uh, devouring widows' houses. Uh, and then you have this great example of a widow giving. So maybe what do we learn, not just about giving here, but what do we learn about the religious leaders of the day? Wow. That's great to put those two together and not separate them. I what jumps out to me here is the the last phrase it says these will receive greater condemnation and this is where Thomas Watson has a sermon entitled hell's furnace heated hotter and the idea is that there will be greater judgments and not every uh, sin is punished the same and that teachers are judged more strictly and here we're told that when people do something like this it says these will receive greater condemnation. As Jesus said, you know, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And so the notion that all sins are the same. Uh, no, that's not what the scripture teaches. And so, and I would also say there's rewards in heaven and some people are going to be greatly rewarded. And I think this widow will be greatly rewarded, whereas these guys will be greatly punished and their punishment is greater because they have pounced upon what God deems is precious, and God always holds up the widows in a favorable light throughout Scripture, and here it is again, and here's somebody that should have been holding them up in a favorable light, and instead is taking advantage of them, Mm -hmm. and they're in big trouble. Better to put a millstone around your neck. Yeah, Yeah, I think, you know, just thinking about the widow real quick, um, uh, every kind of she's set up in contrast to those giving large sums of money to the offering box. And so in every way she's described as having less, but then the word more, you know, she's described as so much less and yet she puts in so much more uh, than all those who contribute to the offering box. And I think perhaps part of what Jesus is getting at there is others are giving like, what they could spare like oh, i can yeah i have extra you can have this and she's not giving what you know what she can spare but she's giving out of 
need and out of nothing. This is like all that I have and I'm, and I'm giving this to the Lord. Um, it's just really kind of a contrast there in the heart. But I think when you take that then back to the religious leaders, it almost, you know, I, I wonder if giving and her devotion is the sub point when we, we often think it's the main point here. I think, I wonder if that's the sub point to the main point, which is, uh, contrasting this with the religious leaders who devour widows houses and, you know, um, the prophets condemned this kind of behavior constantly. So I just wrote down a couple. You have Isaiah chapter 10, uh, Amos 2, Micah 3, this strict condemnation on those who would prey on widows. Uh, the religious leaders of the day, clearly consumed by their own pride and greed, uh, continued to devour the most helpless in society, being the widows. And I think there's just this really strong warning here for um, those who twist religion for selfish gain. And he had just taught, we, we passed over this uh, because it gets enough press, but you know, just a few verses earlier in chapter 12 and verses 29 to 31, it's love God and love neighbor, right? He just, he hit this emphasis. So really the totality of the law, which he's summarizing, you know, from Leviticus 19 is this command to love. And then some people, even religious leaders don't love, they harm. And no doubt, I think, just a word of application would be that I think no doubt the worst use of religion mm-hmm. is when it's used as both a means and a justification to harm others. And here you have, they have a good showing of religiosity and yet for their greedy purpose, um, they're devouring the widows. And Jesus says, that'll bring the stricter judgment on you. Mm-hmm. And I also wonder too, Ben, if he's really trying to, I mean, he's discipling the disciples as to, where to put your value and what's really important and he and here they are just watching people put their their money in and if you just said okay who who put in more mm-hmm. you know they would have never picked the widow right so they see all these impressive sums and they say oh these people are important they're impressive i think i should rub shoulders and hang with them i think i really want to run with these people and then he's holding up this widow and saying did you see that she just put in more, and she gave out of her substance. They get it out of their abundance. Yeah. And I think it really kind of helps us, I think, really prioritize, like, who is really important in the kingdom of God? And Jesus is always holding up the outsider, mm-hmm. and the outsider is always pushing, or the insider pushing out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's... Sorry, Howard, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Um, thanks, Mike. Uh, so... Yeah, she gave out of her abundance, the widow. Um, and then uh, Jesus goes on to say that she has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And I'm thinking more for, like from a practical perspective, right? the widow without anything, who is like, going to take care of her mm-hmm. now, right? Is it actually going to be the religious leaders? Um Probably not. Mm-hmm. And and what's striking is what's the means by which they, the religious leaders, are robbing her, mm-hmm. right? Is through the holy temple, mm-hmm. the holy temple of God. Mm-hmm. And um and this like this just seems to be like God God just seems kind of done yeah. with what was meant to be sacred yeah. but has been exploited. Um 
for a greedy gain. Yeah. I think there's at least a ten- tangential reference to stewardship hmm. and that uh, recognizing that everything that we have is from God and belongs to God and we don't own it. We just manage it for him. Yeah. And, you know, it, as Howard was saying, it's, Part of the responsibility of the religious leaders who had means mm. should have been to take care of this widow who didn't have means. Yeah. But uh, that's, I mean, the text doesn't say that uh, that they weren't taking care of her. But but obviously, if she's giving everything and that's all she has to live on, nobody's taking care of her. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot, a lot we could reflect on with her and. Um, yeah, some really, really good stuff there in chapter 12. We had to skip over a lot, but let's try to get to chapter 13 and um, let's try and cover a couple main points of chapter 13 in 10 or 15 minutes. All right, guys, we're going to try and hot seat this. And really, I think chapter 13 is what a passage of scripture that can just really trip up a lot of Christians um, getting consumed by the details, really trying to figure out exactly what kind of signs and warnings Jesus is giving here. And I think, and we're going to get into this in a second, I think that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is trying to emphasize here. I think he's trying to teach not so much. I think he's trying to say, don't be consumed with the details. I'm trying to push you to be faithful in the present and and keep watch. Um, So keep watch and don't be so consumed with when and how and what. Um, but we'll get we'll get into what you guys think on that in a second. And I'm going to ask you guys two big questions. But just to kind of set this up, you know, Jesus uh, is so they're watching this happen. By right? the way, Mark tells it is they're watching the giving happen in the temple. And Jesus has done all the cleansing of the temple. And he's he's compared the temple to the withering fig tree uh, and all of that. And um, so clearly he's and he's against the religious leaders. So all of that as the backdrop for the beginning of this chapter 13 comes out of the temple and one of his disciples says to him look teacher what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings <laughs> it's like so there's so much just comedic irony almost here because he's just finished condemning the whole thing and then they're like look how pretty it is and so then they they say like he says do you see these great buildings there will not be one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And you just have to wonder like, okay, so then they really are, what is he, you know, what is he getting at? And so then sits on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew ask him privately, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. And that's the question that then propels Jesus into these next uh, 30 some verses on destruction and the end of the age. So two big questions I'm going to ask you guys. These are a little bit, these are kind of a summary of the prep questions I had sent you guys. So kind of two big questions for chapter 13 are number one, uh, Jesus is teaching on the coming judgment. We see it includes local and world events. We see it includes cosmic signs and events. So a lot going on, but what is the main point of his teaching on the coming judgment. So that'll be question one for you guys, just to give you guys a heads up. What's the main point of the coming judgment? And number two, what would be some principles for Christians to begin to interpret um, chapter 13? So that's kind of the two questions that I'm going to ask you guys. I can't wait to see how they answer. Uh, So number one, uh, I mean, we'll start with Mike. What is the main point of the teaching about the coming judgment here? Jesus is teaching them vigilance, not calculation. 
Mm. And not what? Not calculation. Vigilance, not calculation. And maybe you want to unpack that a little bit? Sure. He's exhorting them to be watchful and and not to fall asleep. And that when they see these things happening, that uh, they shouldn't be alarmed because um, it's not the end. It's the things that lead up to the end. And that... um, he dispels the notion about when are these things going to happen? How, how are they going to happen? What's the timing? He pretty much tells them that's not for you to know. Uh, only God knows mm-hmm. that. Not even the son knows that. So anyway, it's, it's, he doesn't give them this information so they can sit around and go, okay, so let's, let's get out a calendar and see when Jesus is coming back. And, and when are, you know, when is Russia going to be taking <laughs> over some other part of Eastern Europe? Yeah. His point was to say, be on guard, watch. Yeah, that's good. Um, Howard, I'm going to come to you for the question too. All right. And so, Charlie, what would you, would you agree with that? Or would you add on anything for the main point? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the book ends, it begins with, uh, see that no one leads you astray, verse five. So he mm-hmm. begins with, um, and then he proceeds to give 19 um, exhortations. And so I think one of the things that kind of a little jingle is eschatology is always loaded with exhortations. And so uh, the when we think about the end times, it's always about being ready and staying awake. And it ends with stay awake. So see nobody leads you astray, stay awake. And then all of these things about, he does give a tip off of, here's all these signs that are going to happen. And they're most of them are horrible things, false mm-hmm. Christs, false prophets, earthquakes and disasters and and all of these difficult things where you're going to be hated by all, all nations, um, a lot about endurance. And I think it's meant to, because Christians, we're, we're often like when the hard times come, like, Lord, where are you in this? And mm-hmm. I can't believe you allowed this to happen. And Jesus knows once again, his authority is that he perfectly knows just as much as he knows that that, that temple is going to be destroyed. He's giving all of these things that are going to happen. So there are, it's meant so that there's, we're not surprised. And as First yeah. Peter tells us, you know, don't be surprised. Don't even be surprised at suffering. Uh, don't be surprised by it. It's, it's going to happen. And that's always a tough pill for us to swallow. But Jesus has been relentlessly preparing us for that. And so stay awake, see that no one leads you astray. Yeah, I think that's good. And uh, I kind of wrote down a couple, this would, I think, summarize the key verses of everything you guys just said uh, on on this chapter. Uh, Disciples are admonished to be alert and watchful, which we see in verses 5, 9, 23, 33, 35, and 37. So that's a pretty strong theme here is to be alert and watchful. They're reminded that they do not know the the time of the end. That's 33 and 35. They're warned not to be led astray by even the most obvious signs in verses 5, 6, 21, and 22. For the end is not yet in verse 7 and 13. And so no one is encouraged or commended for attempting to be an eschatological code breaker, right? That's not the purpose of discipleship. Uh, The premium, the most important thing for disciples is placed not on predicting the future, but on faithfulness in the present, especially during trials and adversity. And I think that hopefully ties in some of what both of you guys said. And uh, really, just that's the main point. So don't lose whatever you want to do with Mark 13. Don't lose that main point. So 
question two, and we're going to start with Howard. Um, what would be maybe then a, a hermeneutical principle, an interpretation principle that Christians could maybe use when they approach um, Mark 13 to start to make sense of some of it? Um, uh, you, you said uh, no matter what you do, I was going to do something with Mark 13. <laughs> um, but uh, given given time, like I think the um, the hermeneutical principle, uh, the my hermeneutics professor uh, when speaking when speaking about es- eschatology reminds us that it's it's yes and more. Mm. In other words, like for those interpretations that say which I I kind of. Um, I kind of resonate with, with respect to the what Ben called the local and worldly, like events mm-hmm. that I actually think that he's talking about the destruction of the temple, right? Because um, they're told not to flee Jerusalem until something specific happens, right? It's that's when you that's when you run to the mountains, right? It wouldn't it doesn't make sense for you to be for everyone to be running to the mountains, um, but. Um, but then the more cosmic one, the cosmic signs, is the coming of the Son of Man. And I think that has to do with the second advent of Christ. Mm-hmm. Because, because the 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 because in verse I hate, I hate to be doing this over a podcast, in verse 10, the reason for all the watching that you enumerated, Ben, is is for verse 10 that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Mm-hmm. The perseverance through all this like all this confusion and craziness and temptation to flee. Mm-hmm. Um especially I'm thinking especially of uh those who are afraid at uh the very end of uh Mark of, or specifically Mark chapter 16 verse 6. Those who are afraid He's Jesus encouraging them. Okay, yes, be watchful so that you can persevere and preach mm-hmm. the gospel. Right? And then, <clears throat> but it's not preach the gospel uh, in general, but specifically to all the nations. Mm-hmm. And then when the when the Son of Man returns, and you see all these cosmic signs, you know that's the second. That you know that's when the um, that's the end. Because of the last verse, which says, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven, mm-hmm. where the gospel has finally reached um, the ends of the earth. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's, y- yes, like persevere and preach the gospel. That's kind of like my takeaway um, uh, and persevere. But it's not, does not just apply to those uh, to the disciples during Jesus's time post-temple visit, which, by the way, was probably a long visit for them from Galilee. It must have been a huge sight to see. All right, it, it would have must have been like, yeah, I would have probably said those same words too, mm-hmm. especially after that long trip. Uh, but there's also continuing fulfillments mm-hmm. of these things that we do see in the news all the time. What we're probably what what you may be. F- feeling that you're experiencing right now yeah yes and more yeah yeah um, i'm just gonna jump in uh real quick for time um and then mike if you want to add something 
quickly. Um, but I want to get to an application question before the episode uh, is over. Uh, one thing that for me was significant was um, because I didn't really slow down. And maybe I did in seminary at some point. And I just forgotten, but I haven't really slowed down to think about Mark 13 as Mark 13. Uh, and so I think passively, I would have just lumped it in with what we call other apocalyptic literature. So thinking some chapters from Daniel, thinking Revelation, apocalyptic, you know, sounds like doomsday. Uh, but really what it means in scripture is um, an unveiling, particularly an unveiling of the end. Uh, but there are some characteristics of, well, several key characteristics of apocalyptic literature that are missing here that was important for me to take note of. So we don't really see uh, uh, some of these characteristics like pairing of this age with the age to come, uh, pairing of heaven and earth together, pairing of those who belong to church and those who do not. There's no visions or bizarre imagery that you often see in the apocalyptic literature, no talk of resurrection, no talk of final punishment of Satan, no description of the final age. Uh, so a lot of these like kind of key features that we think of in apocalyptic literature seem to be missing. I would disagree and, with most of that. Okay, well, we'll come back to that then. Um, but I think um, I think for me then uh, a key, a hermeneutical key is uh, that this is a culmination of Mark's polemic against the temple uh, in uh, not necessarily an apocalyptic reading uh, given chapters 11 and 12, given what Jesus has said about the temple in chapter 11, it's a den of robbers, it's a withered fig tree. Um, the closest uh, thing to a sign that Jesus answers is this abomination of desolation. And Mark gives his editorial, he inserts himself here and says, let the reader understand. You know, I think really kind of dropping a clue that he's really trying to make a point here that there's a significance of the destruction of the temple as a sign uh, of a foreshadowing of kind of final destruction, maybe which I think some of what Howard was getting at. Um, but I just don't think there's all of this. Uh, uh, clearly, Charlie disagrees with me, but uh, apocalyptic literature that we see um, in some of these other key you know, Daniel, Revelation, and so on. Um, well, ben, and, I, uh, I, I agree with you. So let's make it two to one. Here. Okay. What's, what's Howard going to do? Isn't it three to one now? <laughs> if you could be quick, Charlie, because uh, we're getting... Uh, well, you may, yeah. not, you may not have all of the signs that you're referring to here, but certainly you have uh, the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory we have jesus's return being and we have the angels gathering the elect from all the corners of the earth and we have heaven and earth passing away and sun darkened moon not giving its light stars falling from heaven powers in the heavens will be shaken i mean all of these point to me very clearly that jesus is telescoping here so he's referring to to me, I would say it's an A, B, A, B, the way I, that I break out this chapter, okay? But then there's there's uh, meaning 
verses 5 to 23 is all about 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem. And just as there was the abomination of desolation in Daniel, referring to 136 AD with Antiochus Epiphanes, it's going to happen in Rome with, when Titus comes to town, he's going to desecrate the temple. You're going to see the abomination of desolation again. But it doesn't mean that it also can't happen again as this rock skips across the pond. It's going to point to some event at the last day, could very easily point to that as well. But verses 5 to 23 seem to me clearly referring to 70 AD. But then when you get to verse 24, he says, but in those days after that tribulation, now he's doing something, making a little earmark and about verses 24 to 20 uh, to 31 seem to me that he's now referring to the end and then he, he get, seems to go back again to verses 28 to 31 with the fig tree he seems to be doing the the the, the mark and sandwich kind of thing and referring back to 70 AD and, and but it's hard to make tight tight uh, ties because what happens in and and you were asking this question initially, Ben, about how do you interpret these passages? Well, for example, when when Peter gets up and he quotes uh, Joel two and says, "The Spirit has been poured out on all flesh," and here's the clear fulfillment in Acts two. Well, the verse right after that in Joel is referring to the sun being darkened and the moon and all these different eschatological things that clearly didn't happen. And so it's one of those things where I got to Pike's Peak and I thought as I'm going out west of the Rockies, once I got to Pike's Peak, all these mountains were going to line up next to each other. And I get out there and realize they're, they're hundreds and hundreds of miles apart. And so just as John said that when Jesus comes, he's going to you know, throw all the, the, the chaff into the oven and burn it all up. And then he's got his disciples going to Jesus saying, are you the one to come or not? Because we're expecting wrath and where is it? And so even John could only see, you know, he was didn't see the telescope. He didn't see the prophetic foreshortening of, hey, there's a whole other mountain range out there. And Jesus is putting it all together. And we have to see that these things break out kind of like you would say about maybe, I, I look forward to that day. When my daughter, you know, gets a ring on her finger and I look forward to that day when she walks down the aisle and I look forward to that day when she has a child and I look forward to the day when her first child goes to school and, and, and I'm referring to that day, but I'm referring to all these events that are going to take place later when, but they're all referring to when she gets married, but I'm chalking in all these different things. And I would say this has implication several places. Yes, 70 AD. Yes, for us in our age, these signs are occurring. Yes, some of these things are pointing ahead to the future, but certainly he's referring to his return in this passage. Mike, a response. Well, <clears throat> as you know, this is a controversial passage. So here, here's some controversy for you. Um, I don't think this is apocalyptic literature. I think it's Jesus' farewell address to his disciples. And when he talks about the Son of Man coming on clouds, I don't think he's talking about his second coming. I think he's talking about his resurrection and ascension. The, the quote that he, t that he gives us comes from Daniel. And if you read Daniel chapter 7, um, in, that, uh, in that chapter, the Son of Man isn't coming from heaven to earth. He, he's in heaven and he's being exalted um, to the right hand of God and given an eternal kingdom. Um, and as you guys know, from studying Greek, the word erkomai means come. It also means go. Mm -hmm. 
And it, it, so it could very That's well That's confusing. Be, could, yeah. <laughs> Come or go. <laughs> and, and so it means he could be going into heaven. And I think that's probably a, a good way to interpret it, or at least the way that the disciples would have understood it, um, having known Daniel and, uh, and the, the vision that comes in Daniel chapter 7. And there are places in the Old Testament where <clears throat> the sun, moon, stars are mentioned as you know, going out or falling to earth or that sort of thing. In Amos, it refers to um, the fall of Judah. Uh, in uh, Joel, it refers to the fall of Israel. So it could very Jesus could very well be saying to them, the political powers that you know are coming to an end, and the, the world as you know it is going to be turned upside down. And the focus from this point onward isn't going to be on the people. The focus is going to be on the Son of Man. Mm-hmm. So it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Is that what you're you're saying? <laughs> I don't know about that. I feel fine. <laughs> yeah, I know. Is it? <laughs> no, but I, I I think it's for him. Say Jesus is saying to them, Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. That mm-hmm. you know what you know is Roman oppression is 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 you know now a moot point, mm-hmm. uh, and and we're now moving into not this earthly kingdom, but the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be in charge. And, and I would just say, this is not an either or, but a both and. <clears throat> and that, yes, all those things may be true. These earthly kingdoms coming down, it certainly refers to Jerusalem, certainly refers to maybe these things you're talking about with Amos and these other things. But it doesn't mean it doesn't have a ultimate fulfillment. I mean, you got you got to get your arms around verse 27. And how are you going to answer verse 27 then? I mean, I don't see how you can... Let's- answer that without for time i don't want to do a a debate but i'll just ask so we're trying to be helpful for the listeners here uh so yes or no charlie would you say it's apocalyptic would you categorize this in apocalyptic literature alongside like daniel and revelation or would you simply say that this is could this be a farewell address or some kind of eschatological teaching without being apocalyptic see i don't know what you're Ultimately, it's like, what do you mean by your definition of apocalyptic? Yeah, I, I'm I'm a both and. Okay. So it's is it referring to eschatology? Yes. Is there apocalyptic language? Some signs of that in here? Yes. Not not full blown like you know Daniel, Zechariah, Revelation, but there are certain elements that have uh, apocalyptic. Uh, but I would say it's primarily it's a fair, it's it's all the above. Yes, it's a farewell address. Yes, I just see the rock skipping across the pond, hitting a couple times here, and having a last boom still to come. Just as I would say that's about Revelation, I would say that's true in Daniel. Well, I don't think I don't think anyone here disagrees that there's not a eschatological rock skipping across the pond. Uh, maybe I think well, we're probably all talking uh, uh, differences and syllables here a little bit um but i think so just real quick uh uh you know we're gonna have to say let the listener understand (laughs) on this (laughs) on this uh, part here uh but uh i think we are all in agreement that the of the main point here of mark 13 right which the main point almost is don't get bogged down in the details stay awake and don't get consumed by trying to predict signs uh and a timetable uh because even the son of man doesn't know um but stay awake be watchful be faithful and uh no matter what if you think it's apocalyptic or not or whatever that i think is the main takeaway um i hope we would all agree on that for mark 13 so real quick hopefully you guys maybe for a uh we can just do a quick um 
bonus round. Uh, thinking of the last question that I had sent you guys, uh, how would the lives of Christians today and even the ministries of churches be different if we took seriously Jesus's teaching on who he is, which is certainly kind of what the chapter 12, maybe there's a lot of that, who he is and the coming judgment, right? Which is kind of 13. So how would our lives really as Christians and in our churches be different if we took who he is and this reality of the coming judgment seriously? And I'm going to start with Howard and go round table from there. Wow. Uh, might might sound cliche, um, but I think it is uh, a helpful reminder uh, with the, the Son of Man, um, the one who did who did subject himself to death, is the one uh, whom we're following, and mm-hmm. uh, and so the again the the perseverance specifically from the passages that we've covered to. To, to faithfully proclaim good news mm-hmm. um, because it's going to be God sending the angels out and gathering the elect. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's do that um, when things are confusing in our lives and when things like when, when whatever it may be these days for us, what is the temple in our lives, right? Mm-hmm. What, what, what's being, what sacred thing has been come become corrupt. Let's, um, that's not what it's about, right? Um, but uh, to, I think it's to for us to persevere and preach the gospel. Um, yeah. yeah. Good. Mike? I think it gives us great confidence um, because you know, we, we know where things are going, even though we might not know all the details. And there's, a, there's an old hymn that says, I know not what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. Mm-hmm. If our confidence is in Jesus and, and not necessarily in how events unfold, that just, that just gives us tremendous confidence as believers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Charlie? And to put that in real, just, you know, 2020, you know, this has been a tough year, you know. Election-wise, coronavirus, racism issues. I mean, it's been like, it just seems like things are spinning out of control. And there's just a lot of people, a lot of Christians that are, as well, just really angry, uh, frustrated, bitter, just eaten up with watching uh too much news and listen to too much talk radio and social media and a lot of us just really aim to agitate and people are very agitated and this is just a really what we need to hear is that we were told that kingdom would rise up against kingdom and nation against nation and all these things were told that and and people are kind of looking like they they see their precious country kind of coming down you know, and they want to say what great buildings, what what great stones, and and Jesus just puts it in the internal picture. He's got it all taken care of, and he really wants us to be vigilant and alert for for him. Yeah. And that's what I think we need to focus on. And I think you would probably add that you would be more confident if you categorized it as apocalyptic literature. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Stop. Everybody stop. Everybody stop. Everybody stop. Everybody stop. Everybody stop. <laughs> Uh, I think, um, you know, I'm just going to take the widow here maybe as an example of someone who really, uh, she lives in such a way that you can tell she takes, she loves the Lord and takes him at his word 
right? And and in particular, in this case, about a giving sacrificial heart. Um, and I just wonder, I've been thinking about this a lot the last couple of weeks. I've had some different times where this has come up of just really been thinking a lot of um, even in my own life, but just, you know, so Christians, uh, do we really take Jesus at his word? And I think there's so often where we can really excuse, make an excuse to soften the impact of Jesus's teaching on our own life. And, you know, we want to be careful with interpretation and not take certain things literally. So we don't want to take, for example, when he says uh, it would be better for you to, um, you know, if, if your eye causes you to sin and gouge it out, it'd be better for you to uh, enter into life with one eye than go to hell with, with both eyes. Of course, we don't want to interpret that literally as him saying, uh, gouge out your eyes, literally. However, there is a very severe warning there about what we are consuming about our eyes. And I worry that t- these teachings of Jesus, we are too quick to make an excuse, say, oh, he's not, yeah, that's not what he really means. Or, um, you know, or like if we're watching something, oh, this doesn't really affect me, so it's okay. Uh, and just really not, you know, Jesus seems to be, like uh, using that example, very strong on <laughs> protecting what we consume with our eyes, you know? Yeah. And there's other all these teachings about giving or uh, generosity or charity or sacrifice or uh, whatever the case may be that I just worry you know, in my own life and for Christians, particularly in the West, the United States, that we're softening it. And I just, if we took seriously who Jesus was and this coming judgment, he's coming back, would we be quicker to take him at his word? You know, I'm, I want to take Jesus at his word and not make an excuse to get myself out from under the weight of what he's saying um and so that would just be my exhortation for us is taking him at his word um really taking him at his word so um well thank you guys for being here thank you all for listening uh do hope this is a blessing to you all we have two more episodes we're gonna record uh chapter um 14 next week and then 15 to the end uh the week after that and so uh please uh you know if you are listening to this if you're enjoying it you know continue to share with your friends and all that and uh uh, we will be back again next week with uh chapter 14 so take care everybody god bless you all